We all want a happy life, and there are thousands of opinions about what will help get you there. So why does it seem like so few people are actually finding true happiness? This series explores why happiness is so elusive and how our relationship with God leads to the contentment that we all desire. Here's today's teaching. The scripture reading this morning is taken from Luke chapter 12, verse 13 to 21. Please turn to Luke 12 in your Bible or follow along on the sermon notes handout or on the words on the screen. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. And God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Hey, good morning. My name is Sean. I'm one of the pastors here at Central. It's good to be with you. Anybody else excited about the potential of snow this week? Yeah, there are some. Amazing. I did not think that you would clap at that. The kids who I heard you get this much and you get a snow day here. In Fernie, we would have this much snow and we'd have to like snowshoe our way to school. So uh, it's a little bit different here. Um, hey, good to have you here with us. We're, we're going to do something a little bit different this morning. And I, I hope that you give me a little bit of latitude um, to go in a little bit of a different direction in this sermon than you probably are used to in sermons. And, and I'm hoping that in the next couple of weeks you're going to say, aha, I, I get it. I, I get what Sean was trying to do. Uh, but before we get there, if you and I went out for coffee for the purpose of getting to know each other, what we would inevitably do is we'd start telling stories. What we wouldn't do is just kind of like a tennis match, lob surgical facts back and forth like some, you know, living obituary. We, we wouldn't do that. Even though those things are true, you wouldn't just start sharing dates and clinical things about your life because as humans, we understand ourselves and each other through stories. We're, we're a people of stories. Stories help us make sense of our lives and other people's lives. And in the same way, stories help us make sense of our world. Uh, Tim Keller, in his book, Every Good Endeavor, makes a strong case that you and I struggle to understand anything without attaching a storyline to it. For example, if, if you were alive then, and, and you can remember back to those terrible days on 9-11, as we are watching and re-watching scenes on television of airplanes flying into buildings, as you were glued to this horrible footage on that day, we understood what was happening, but we didn't understand 
what was happening. And as the coverage was going on, even on that first day, and as the commentators on the news were trying to make sense of these shocking events, they did so by trying to fit these events into a bigger narrative, into a bigger story. Because stories, if you'll accept the metaphor, are kind of like clotheslines that our minds need in order to kind of hang the clothespins of events in our lives off of. The clothesline of an overarching story helps us make sense of our world. And so we instinctively need them. So even before the towers fell, when we hardly knew any information outside of flight numbers, there was already efforts to try to pin the clothespins of this event onto a bigger story. And so one of them that you might have heard was people were saying, hey, this is the result of an American imperial power that's kind of come home to roost. Other people said, well, no, there are, there are evil people in the world who, who hate freedom and they hate everything America stands for, and that's why this has happened. And so some stories right away had the U.S. as victims, some had them as the villains, and depending on which story you settled on, it impacted how you interpreted and reacted to those tragic events. Now the point that I'm trying to make and that Tim Keller makes in his book is that we as humans instinctively just grope for some story to help us make sense of the world. It's, it's what we do as humans. Um, a classic illustration of this is found in the philosopher Alistair Mac, uh, McNair's, uh, Ma, sorry, McIntyre's book, After Virtue. He says, imagine that you're at a bus stop. You've just come from the public library. When a young man that you don't know runs up to you and he says to you, the name of the common wild duck is Histronicus, Histronicus, Histronicus. And then he runs off. And you're like, what the heck just happened? Like, you understand every word, most of them, <laughs> of what this guy said, but you, you don't understand what's going on. And so he says in his book, what you instinctively do is that you try to start to create some type of narrative that helps us make sense. And so you might say to yourself, well, maybe the guy's got mental health issues, or maybe he's high on something. That would make sense of this. Or your mind might say, hey, maybe he was at the library yesterday, and somebody who looked a lot like me asked him, hey, do you know the name of the Latin name for the common wild duck? That would make sense of the story. Or perhaps um, you read a lot of Tom Clancy novels and you think that maybe this guy is a foreign spy and that was some code phrase for a secret rendezvous. His point is, is that you got three different stories. You know, the first one's sad, the second one's funny, the third one's dramatic. But the point is, is that our minds automatically want to grab hold of a story in life to make sense of what we experience. It's part of our human condition. Therefore, the stories that you and I embrace are very, very powerful and very important because they will determine how you interpret your life. 
They will influence your expectation for life. They will shape what you value in life, and they will determine what you pursue and spend your life on. And so the story that you see yourself in is very, very formative. And every single person in this room is living out of a story, whether you recognize it or not. The question is not, will you live your life out of a bigger story? The question is, what story will you live out of? As we march towards Easter, the event that the Christian faith says is the most important in human history. For we believe that through Easter, God wrote a story that helps better than any other story, that helps you make sense of the world you see out there and sense of the world you see in here, and therefore it has the power to change the script of your life in a way that leads into a life that is deeply satisfying and deeply meaningful. But it's not the only story out there. Stephen Shoemaker, in his book, God Stories, says this, quote, Our lives must find their place in some greater story, or they will find their place in a lesser one. His point is the same as Tim Keller's and same as philosopher Alistair McIntyre's that you instinctively will glom on to a story. And what I want to show you is that there are lesser stories out there that dominate the cultural groupthink of our age. There's another storyline out there that we are immersed in every day that seeks to guide your life. It seeks to define what is important and worthwhile. It makes promises and claims that seeks to shape the nuts and bolts of your life. And it's not the biblical story. It's an altogether different storyline. And some of us are trying to live our lives out of this story. You see, what I think that what happens in churches and to many Christians is that we take parts of the Christian faith like clothespins and we try to hang them off our story. So we read Jesus and I like some of Jesus' ethics and I like some of his teachings and I'll take little doctrinal bits and I'll try to hang it off my story. But the story that we're trying to hang our Christian faith off of is this Western 21st century cultural story and the Christian faith doesn't hang off those stories. Those, those clothespins don't fit well with this story because Jesus' vision for life, his cross, his call doesn't sync up well with this cultural story. And so Christians that are trying to live their life out of this clothesline, out of this cultural story, find their faith constantly frustrating with very little power to actually shape their life. And that's because the Christian faith is not a buffet of clothespins for you to kind of pick and choose and take the ones you like and hang off your clothesline. The Christian faith is an entirely another clothesline. It's a different story. It's a better story, a truer story that we are invited into. 
So in the next couple of weeks and the next few minutes, I want to do something a little bit different. I, I want to expose to you and show you some of the aspects of the lesser story. The story we might call the Western story or the 21st century Canadian cultural story. The story that you and I are in the middle of. I want to do this because every single one of us is impacted by this story. It subtly and not so subtly tries to influence how you think and see life. It affects your choices. I mean, the average Canadian is assaulted with 1.6 million advertisements a year that are all trying to brainwash you into a different story to try to tell you that this is the way life and satisfaction and fulfillment happens. That this other storyline, this 21st century cultural storyline, holds the key to your life's satisfaction and meaning. And this story is so ubiquitous in our culture that it's like the air we breathe. We might not even recognize how it's steering us and shaping us. And so what I want to try to do is is really briefly this morning, I want to pull back the curtain on part of that story and show you that it's a very different, hostile, lesser story to Jesus's. So in the next couple of weeks, I'm going to show you some of the big claims that our culture makes out of its story, and I want to try to show you how they are magnetically opposite to the gospel so you don't try, spend your life trying to settle for hanging Christian clothespins off a lesser story, but see that Jesus invites you to live your life out of a better, truer, more beautiful story, okay? That's what we're going to try to do. So give me a little bit of latitude, okay? You're going to be like, good night, is this a university lecture or is this a sermon? Just give me a little bit of latitude this morning, okay? Um, what I want to share with you over the next six to seven minutes uh, is information that I mostly gleaned from Dr. Michael Goheen. I, I had the pleasure of sitting in his living room with him in Phoenix, Arizona, and listening to him for probably two hours unpack the foundation of kind of the Western cultural story that we were in, and I was just like gobsmacked. It, it, it was so riveting to me that... Um, yeah, he's written numerous books on the subject, so if anything I say really piques your interest and you want more information, I can steer you that way. And so anything smart that I say is probably from him, okay? So I'm just going to quote where, uh, yeah. Um, the story that our society is living out of, or you might say the dominant worldview of our culture, it didn't just arrive one day. It's the byproduct of a long history of kind of development and evolution. And most historians would trace that development back to the Enlightenment. Now, the Enlightenment was this intellectual movement that emphasized human reason and human individualism. And of course, the Enlightenment resulted in many, many good things. I mean, the rise of education, the empowerment of people as democracies replace more oppressive systems. It saw the end of slavery in the West and the upsurge of the Industrial Revolution. The Enlightenment gave rise to science and the scientific method and gave us a more um, empirical knowledge of, of how the world worked. 
And so the Enlightenment in many ways freed us to better, tra- to better tap into the deep well of human potential. And so there's no arguing that post-Enlightenment life was much better than pre-Enlightenment life by just about any metrics that you would use. We became more prosperous, we were able to subdue the ravages of you know, many diseases, uh, scientific and technological breakthroughs brought all kinds of improvement to life. We hit the Industrial Revolution and pretty soon output started to increase exponentially. And of course, technology and development catalyzed more technology and development. And pretty soon we were able as a species to produce some amazing things that helped society. Let me use one little example. At the turn of the last century, Henry Ford developed the automobile which was a huge benefit for people. And if you wanted to buy one of Mr. Ford's Model T, Ford's, you had the option of getting one that was black or black. (laughs) You only had one option because their cause was pragmatic. It was a transportation tool, so it didn't matter what color it was, so you only had one option. Uh, File that little fact away in your mind. So I'm going to come back to that in a minute. Now, as industrialization spread through every sector of the economy, factories could now produce goods in a few days that would take the same number of workers months to uh, complete. And so output increased exponentially all across the board. And a a classic example in literature is they talk about, you know, shoe factories in the eastern seaboard of the United States. That a shoe factory now, in two months of production, could could produce enough shoes to flood the markets with a new pair of shoes for every pair of feet in the United States in just two months. And so industrialization meant the quota meant the quota of needed commercial goods could be met in a fraction of the time that it once took. Stay with me, because this is going somewhere, I promise. So stay with me. So supply could easily meet demand without now breaking a proverbial sweat. And so in the beginning of the 20th century, some very important decisions had to be made that were made by some very powerful influencers and decision makers in the Western world. And the choice was this. Either we scale back production, and there was a whole group that says, yeah, let's limit the work week. If we can produce everything we need now through industrialization, let's cut down on the amount of hours we work, and let's pay people the same, but free them up for recreation and leisure and arts and education. Or we have to somehow increase demand so that we continue to increase supply. Or maybe you could say it this way. Either we just produce a number of shoes as there are feet in America, or we convince people that they don't just need one pair of shoes, but 10. They need a shoe for walking, and shoes for bowling, and shoes for hiking, and shoes for dancing, and shoes for church, and shoes for fall, and they need red shoes, and they need blue shoes, and you, you get the idea. We need to convince people that they need more and more and more. In short, They needed to turn us into consumers. And that birthed what we now call the consumer economy. It didn't always exist. The last hundred years is profoundly different than the 
500 years that happened before it. Uh, In 1955, one author writing in a well-known journal wrote this. Our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life. By convincing people that their spiritual and ego satisfaction is dependent on consumption. If we are going to continue to grow our economy and grow our profits and and we have the unbelievable ability to produce more and more and more, we have to convince people that they need more and more and more. And the only way we can do that is by tethering these goods to some deep soul, human, spiritual need that they have. In effect, we have to convince people that the one with the most toys when he dies wins. That the good life is found in having and buying more and more stuff. So the growth of profits, the growth of the economy requires that people become consumers. We must shape this into their identity. And so to do that, we're going to link some of their spiritual and felt needs with the commodities that we produce. And so now, people don't just need a car to get from A to B. They need a car now to get the girl. They need a car to keep up with the Joneses. They need a car now to impress their neighbors. They need the car now to feel like they're enough, that they're worthwhile. And so cars don't just come utilitarian black. They come in all kinds of colors and options because they are meant to be expressions of your individuality. 1938, the president of the Ford Motor Company called this, quote, the gospel of consumption, end quote. The good news that consumerism brings life. And so right around this time, advertising made a switch from selling products to now selling an identity and an image and a lifestyle. I mean, if you look at any advertisement, it's not selling products. It's selling an image. It's selling a lifestyle. And all of that is this giant evangelism campaign for the gospel of consumerism. That somehow you and I can consume our way into happiness, into the good life. That the life satisfaction that we all hunger for, the sense of meaning and purpose and fulfillment and self-worth, your sense of belonging all lies on the other side of a bigger and better house or more and nicer cars or newer and trendier clothes or faster and cooler gizmos and gadgets. And so the last hundred years, our culture has worked tirelessly to leverage the very real yearnings that you and I have in our soul to brainwash us into believing that we satisfy those yearnings first and foremost as consumers. That is the Western story that is playing out all around us. That is the story that we are continually through advertisements trying to be converted into believing. And so Alan Hirsch concludes, quote, there is no such religious force in the West as powerful as consumerism. And I know I'm saying this post-Christmas, 
when your visa bills come and due and you're like, oh my gosh, I spend more money, money that I don't have on stuff that I don't need and now I got to pay for it. And I know, good, good. I hope you're feeling, I hope you're feeling some of that right now. Because here's, here's what I want you to see. Is that this, this storyline, this identity as you as a consumer, it not only shapes what you value and what you chase after, but it will become the lens that will tint how you see everything in life. If you are, at your core, a consumer, then everything becomes a commodity. Relationships, church, God, all become commodities. Commodities that exist to meet your need, to better your life, and therefore those commodities must compete in the marketplace for your attention and affection. And so when church becomes less about a community where we serve others and we are refined often painfully into the life and lifestyle of Jesus, if church becomes a commodity, then, then we'll shop around until we find one that meets our needs. And as soon as that guy up there says something I don't like or the kids' ministry isn't as good for my kids, or I have a, then what do we do? We peace out and we'll go shop around and find somewhere else to go. Why? Because you are first and form- foremost a consumer. That's how we respond, because that's what we're trained to see life like. If you're a consumer first, then relationships take on a sense of a commodity, meaning that you are going to expect some return on your time and your investment. And because life is busy for all of us, and we all have limited relational time and space, we are instinctively trained to invest ours where we will get the biggest value return. So you better contribute and make my life better in some way or else I don't really have time for you. And so people's value is subconsciously determined by what they can contribute to us. And so consumerism actually devalues individuals. And you don't have to think about it too long before you realize that consumerism leads to your own devaluization. Is that a word? No, I just made that up. You, you know what I'm trying to say. There's a joke in, in my household. Honestly, it happens every lunchtime. It's like, what words did dad make up in his sermon today? Because I have a habit of just making up words out of nowhere. But you know what I'm trying to say. You don't have to think this way too long before it realize how it devalues you. Because if life is largely a pursuit for my own satisfaction and fulfillment through the commodities of things, experiences, and peoples, then soon we realize that we're just a commodity for others. And so we need to compete and perform and put on our best face so we receive the recognition and value that we crave. And so we better not show that we're hurting. We better not show that we're slow. We better not show that we're a drag on people right now because life is hard. And so there is, in a consumeristic culture, there's a deep temptation to put on a fake facade that we're all good, everything's good, while under the surface, we feel hopeless, alone in our mess. But the good news is, if you feel like that, you can at least go to the mall and buy yourself something new and you'll feel better about yourself for 20 minutes, right? That's the whole, that's the whole culture. 
You just go shop your way into feeling better for a little bit. In a consumer economy, we can begin to look at God as the ultimate commodity. The one who will make your whites whiter, who will help your dreams come to pass. And then what happens when life gets hard? And God doesn't deliver the way that we think. Or you start realizing that Jesus doesn't really say anything about come and follow me so you can be self-actualized. Jesus says, come follow me and die to yourself. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't like that bits of the Christian faith. So we're just going to ignore that bit and, and settle on some of these ethical bits that we like. And we live out of a totally different story than the one Jesus calls us into. This identity as consumers has been transfused into the bloodstream of Western culture. And hear me, it wars against your soul. It wars against the better story that Jesus has to offer, which is why I did the unusual thing of spending 25 minutes in a sermon talking about something that has nothing to do with Jesus before we get to Jesus. Um, I love how in the text that, uh, that Marianne read, how in a simple story, Jesus exposes the futility of the lesser story. The story Jesus tells is of a guy who is so rich that he needs to build a bigger garage for all his toys, all his stuff. I mean, he's doing so good that he's got like renting out storage containers to put all of his stuff in. That's how good he's doing at life. And Jesus calls the guy a what? Remember the word? A fool, that's right. Causes, calls him a fool, not because he's rich, but because he thinks his stuff, his wealth, is going to deliver the good life that he longs for. Or in verse 19, the guy says, I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy, eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. But Jesus reminds his hearers that there is a much bigger story playing out beyond this guy's barn and this guy's stuff. Jesus says, but God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life is demanded of you. And the things that you've prepared, whose will they be? Well, the obvious answer is somebody else's because that's always the answer to what's going to happen to our stuff. It's always going to somebody else, right? The old expression, there's no U-Haul behind a hearse. It remains true 100% of the time. None of it goes with you. Everything that you work for, everything that you acquire, everything that you put your sweat into, everything that you save for gets left behind for somebody else. It's only a matter of time. And so Jesus is saying, if you are pursuing those things to try to satisfy some deep God-sized spiritual yearnings that you have for purpose or fulfillment or a sense of the good life, those things will be shown as not only feeble but foolish because they carry no lasting power. They don't cross over into the next life. So why would you spend so much of your life making it all about acquiring them? That's foolish. But elsewhere in Jesus' teaching, we see that, that those things that we 
orient so much of our life around pursuing, not only do they, they don't make it to the next life, they don't even make it through this one. Look what Jesus says. Don't collect for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Notice Jesus isn't saying having stuff is bad. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying treasuring stuff is bad. Don't put the weight of your heart's affection, your heart's hope on stuff. Don't put the weight of your story, the longings of your soul on collecting and consuming more and more stuff because they will not deliver on what you need, on what you hope they will. Because they're temporary. Moss or rust will eventually destroy your, your treasure. Jesus is saying they don't last. Eventually it'll break down. The quarter panel will rust out or you'll park it at Mayfair and some thief is going to drive off with it. That's what's going to happen to it. It's because they're temporary. And not only are they temporary, but Jesus is, is saying that the satisfaction that they bring is temporary. Hear me. When I was in college, I'm, I'm going off script here. So when I was in college, uh, some people went to college with me here, and they know this is true. I had a 1985 blue Plymouth Horizon car that I broke all four door handles off. Uh, it literally caught fire at a gas station. I had to put it out with a fire extinguisher, and I drove it home. And, and to get into the car, I had to pop the, the hatch and shimmy through the hatch to open up the doors, which is not great when you're taking girls on dates. And, and, and hear me, there is no glory in that thing. Um, I have a friend who is a, a multi, multi, multi-millionaire philanthropist who collects cars. He has, he has a room probably three times the size of our auditorium that he parks his cars in. I was visiting him in Kelowna um, uh, two years back, and he's like, hey, I just bought a brand new McLaren, whatever it is, $480,000 car. He's like, you want to take it out? I'm like, uh-huh, <laughs> I do want to take it out. <laughs> and so I drove around Kelowna, and I'd be at stoplights, and ladies are like, like every her head is turning and I was like, this has never ever happened to me. And, and hear me, there is a little bit of temporary glory that comes in cool stuff, right? That does happen. But Jesus is saying, so let's not deny that it feels good to go buy stuff. I know it, it gives us a little ca- caffeine boost of excitement. I know that that's how it works. But Jesus is saying that is so temporary and we know it. It's called buyer's remorse. We come home, we're like, oh man, this, this didn't do what I thought it was going to do. It didn't make me feel what I thought I was going to feel. It didn't make me feel better about myself. Because this is what Jesus is getting at. It doesn't matter how shiny it is, or how much you wax it, or how much you maintain it, or how much insurance you put on it. Eventually, it's going to be in the landfill covered with dirty diapers and coffee grounds. <laughs> That's where it's going. There is stuff that when I was a young man that I pined for and sacrificed and worked overtime to go and buy that I wasted all kinds of money on stuff that at a garage sale 15 years, I could not give it away for free. Nobody wants your five CD turntable, right? 
(laughs) Why? Because it's so temporary. It's part of what Jesus is saying. There is nothing that your material thing that you are pining for right now that in another age people are going to be like, what? You spent your whole life chasing that hunk of junk? So Jesus is telling us what we all know but we seem to forget is that treasures that woo us as consumers turn to trash really, really quickly. Uh, I'm going to get the worship team to come on up. And so what I want to leave you with and I'm going to springboard into next week is that Jesus invites you to step off of this treadmill this story that you're constantly running, that our culture keeps calling you to get on this treadmill and run after more and better stuff, hopefully that eventually you'll get somewhere and feel good, but you don't. You never arrive. You buy the next thing, and guess what? It doesn't work, so then now it's the next better, better thing that you have. Jesus invites us out of that story into a better, truer story in which he says that you can actually be, quote, rich towards God. Those deepest God-sized yearnings that you have that you keep trying to cram stuff down into to try to fill that hole and they just rattle around in there can actually be filled with a type of life that will satisfy you, a type of life that will give you meaning, a type of life that will make you feel really alive, not comfortable, not sit back, put up our feet and like eat, drink, and let's be merry, No, 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 Jesus has got a very different picture of what the good life looks for. Remember that at your core, you are not a consumer. No matter what advertising keeps trying to tell you, that your deepest need for meaning and significance will not be satisfied at the mall because you were created for a better story than that. And this, this act is the act that we rekindle and restory our fickle hearts into the better, truer story of what is going on. That the only real commodity that matters was the body of Jesus and the blood of Christ and God gave them, spent them both on us. That you could be forgiven, that you could have a fresh start, that you could be connected to the greatest love in the universe. That's God. That is what your soul longs for. And all that advertising that's trying to convince you and distract you away to find it somewhere else, it will fail you. Jesus will not. And so we're going we're gonna to dive for these, all the way up to Easter. We're going to do a deep dive into Jesus' story and to show how it's better. And so I hope you'll come with us. If you're new here, if you're checking out church, man, we want you to come and we want you to join our groups and we want you to sing with us and we want you to listen to sermons. The one thing that we ask you not to do, if you're not a follower of Jesus yet, if you haven't made up your mind on who he is and whether you want to spend your life following him is we ask you not to take communion. This is kind of like a family deal. It's for those of us who actually believe that we are called into a bigger and better story through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so if that's you, 
and, and that's the story that you want to live into, then we would invite you to join with us in communion. And Jesus frames what is happening with these words in Matthew 26. We read these words that after Jesus and his friends were eating, Jesus took bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it out to his disciples. And he says, take it and eat it. This is my body. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink from it all of you for this is my blood that establishes the covenant. It is shed for the for many, for the forgiveness of sins. This, friends, is a pathway into how we can be rich with God through the riches of Jesus offered up to you. And so I invite you to open up your packet. Okay, I'm breaking off part of this one because I can't get mine open. (laughs) And and this wafer, this bread, is a symbol of Jesus' body, an actual real divine commodity that was broken for you. Let's eat in remembrance of what Jesus has done. And this cup, again, and this cup, is a symbol of the blood of Christ that was poured out for the forgiveness of your sins so that your story could begin afresh. It tells us that even though we are more broken and messed up and sinful than we can imagine, we are more loved than we could hope for. That God would meet our sin with his grace. So let's drink in remembrance of the truer and better story of Jesus' blood poured out for us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I ask that you would story our minds and story our hearts in your son's story. Help us see that there are two kingdoms. There are two clotheslines that we can hang our life off of. But you call us into a better kingdom. A kingdom not of futility, a kingdom of fulfillment. A kingdom not of purposelessness, but one of purpose. A, A kingdom where we are not consumers, but we are Christians, little Christ's. So God, may you story our hearts in the truth and may we see lives so radically shaped and set free by this story that we become beautiful lights on a hill for others to see that there is a better, truer story. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. We want to take a moment to thank you for listening and we invite you to join us on Sunday mornings in person or online. For more information about who we are and what's happening at the church, visit us online at centralbaptistchurch.ca. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Church Victoria podcast.